Inverse Genius episode 27, Insert Coin. In this episode, Eric is joined with Brian Counter and Bruce Vogue III to talk about coin-op video games. Hey, do you know you can go over to podpledge.com and search for Inverse Genius and you'll see our Podpledge page. All that money goes to help support the ongoing podcasting costs and we truly appreciate it. Thanks. Welcome, yes, to another episode of Inverse Genius. They told me it shouldn't be done, but I did it anyway. <laughs> I'm Eric Dewey, your host, <laughs> and I have with me two excellent co-hosts, the first of which is somebody who, let's be honest, a little counterproductive, Mr. Brian Counter. Thanks for the plug, Eric. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> and waiting there in the wings, kind of doing the Muhammad Ali dance in his in his uh, wrestling boxing robe is Mr. Bruce Vogue the 3rd. Oh no. <laughs> That's right. So interesting thing, I've started to like cardio box. Okay. So I never realized how dangerous Ali's shuffle was. Like even as a fan of boxing, I was like it's a cool looking move, but I didn't realize that in the shuffle he actually moves from orthodox to southpaw. Oh, okay. So, like, he's... So, there's technique there. There's there's technique there to throw you off, because your whole body is a different way if you throw orthodox versus southpaw, and he could throw both ways. So, he could hit you southpaw for, like, half a match, do the shuffle, move into orthodox, completely the change the way he was hitting you, shuffle back and shuffle back to southpaw, which, like... That, that would be like a batter taking the first pitch left-handed and taking <laughs> the second pitch right-handed. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So just a just a video game note because I I've I've figured this out through playing uh, fitness boxing on the uh, on the Switch. Oh, sweet, cool. So yes, we are talking about video games. I do want to apologize for the long delay between Inverse Genius episodes. The only real excuse I have is just working on my PhD. But we're back. We're excited, and uh, we're ready to jump into a brief history of the coin op video games. And uh, Brian is the one that sort of introduced this topic, and it's near and dear to all of our hearts. Absolutely. I, I was thinking, if I had every quarter I dropped into a slot, I would be able to not work anymore. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah, that is true. Yep, pretty much. Babysitting money went right out the window with me. Yes. And college, quarters were worth their weight in gold because they also operated the laundry machines. <laughs> and so it was a real yes. challenge at times. Do I play another game or do I do laundry this week? <laughs> well, unless you had someone clever enough in the dorms to duct tape quarters into the machine so that everyone could use them for free until they figured that out. Ah, see, this is the stuff they need to teach me in college. I don't care about, <laughs> you know, marketing and consumer behavior. I need to know how to rig the laundry machine. Yeah, I, the other thing was was you could tape a string to a quarter, and you would feed the quarter in until it hit the mechanism, and then you could pull it back out. <laughs> Just as an aside, I never really understood how those mechanisms worked until I built my arcade cabinet, and I have a, a coin slot in my arcade cabinet, and the I now understand completely. I've taken out and messed with the mechanisms of that, and... Uh, I can see how that would work now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So let us look at the history of video games, or at least arcade games. Uh, and the reason I want to make a slight difference is because, as Bruce is about to tell us, they did not start as video games. Yeah, there's sort of like the easiest way to do this. If you look at something like the Wikipedia article is it breaks video games into like pre the golden era, the golden era and post the golden era. But before then, there's really like pre-video game coin-operated games, uh, which in the U.S. started with, like, Skee-Ball. And it's the same Skee-Ball that you know now. Like, that brand name of Skee-Ball started, near as I can tell to the research I've done, 1909. And there were a bunch of changes to that. And that all sort of came from the French Bagatelle machines, uh, which were essentially pinball with no flippers. Uh, you would sort of just shoot a ball out into the top of the machine and it would hit a bunch of pins and would sort of drop into like saucers to score points. Um, as that sort of evolved, uh, 1947 is when pinball or pinball machines get flippers. Uh, so that's sort of a big moment in what becomes sort of the modern pinball machine. Um, then pinball has a lot of history. We'll talk about on another episode between 47 and kind of like 1970, 1971. Around then is what begins to become what we think of as the idea of a modern arcade cabinet. 
Um, there was a game called Galaxy Game that was the first ever coin-operated game. Uh, it was installed at Stanford University uh, in September of 71. There's also one, I believe, that was even earlier um, that was called, I think, Space Adventure. And Space Adventure was this wild machine that was, like, curvy and, and had, like, fins on it. And it was made of either, the examples I've seen are made of either a gold material or a green material that I would say most looks like a gold or green sparkly bowling ball. Mm -hmm. It's just like this wild, and the whole thing is like this 1960s, like almost sort of like a space sexy nightmare where it's like, it's (laughs) definitely like curves and fins and looks like a 57 Chevy but also, like, part of it looks like liquid. Like, it's they're really wild-looking machines. I know one point as a kid, uh, the Museum of the Moving Image in London had one. And, like, 10-year-old me tried to play it and just could not make heads or tails out of it. So I've at least touched that original machine, but I've never, like, <laughs> I didn't understand what I was doing in any substantive way. And I remember my father with me, I was like, what is this? And he was like, I have no idea. <laughs> and that was sort of the end of that experience. But that gets us uh, kind of just think of it like you had pinball, you had skee ball, you had those similar games. You probably had coin operated pool tables. Uh, you definitely like vending machines and that kind of stuff. But really, about 7071 is where we can start talking about video games and sort of what we call the pre golden era. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I, I remember as a kid, uh, I, I've got you by a few years, Eric, and I think I've got Bruce by a few more. As a kid in the mid 70s, there was a new mall that opened up, and it had Le Mans Speedway, and it was bumper cars, which failed quickly, and then a bunch of early coin-op games. And so uh, you saw a lot of the precursor to video games there, a lot of a lot of early pinball kind of things, um, but most of the games in there were light gun games and contact games. And what I mean by contact games is, there was one, I don't remember the name of it, it was like this big beastly fish fishy monster thing that would just kind of go around in the water and was coming towards you but all it really was was animated uh cartoon frames that would just be rotating around and so you had a gun to try and shoot it and if you shot and you missed nothing would happen but if you shot and hit it the frames the cartoon would change before your eyes and it would like a blow up or whatever and all it really was doing was the the way you're moving the gun on the forefront of the game if it made contact with the moving contact that was behind the scenes in the console then it allowed that to happen and you scored so that was a contact game and there were shooting arcade games that you could actually spend 10 cents for one play or 25 cents for three plays this is back in the early days yeah i remember I remember one called Jungle Drums, and it was just a light gun, and there would be stuff flying around the screen. There were physical pieces of wood and plastic moving around, and they had fluorescent orange targets. And essentially, you'd fire essentially a light gun, and knowing what I know now, essentially, if you hit it, it would reflect that piece of light that you hit with your trigger into the top area of the cabinet to make a contact, and that would score you some points. So those were some of the earlier version uh, arcade games. I remember the my father, who used to be in the Air Force, would play this one called uh, uh, Red Baron. And it was nothing more than a cartoon-drawn biplane. And you'd have to target the the engine with it. And you had this gun, which was just a bar that you, <laughs> you pushed forward. And you'd move your joystick to try and simulate you know, flying up, down, left, or right. And again, if you hit it long enough on the contact, it would it would put a frame of a blown-up plane and have a really loud, obnoxious, unrefined noise. And if you got all the hits, then you would get a coin. So those were some of the early days of arcades for me. And then last but not least, uh, there was this small place in Indiana we used to go for a vacation. And I know we're not doing pinball, but it was essentially a pinball machine where you flicked the ball, it would come down, and it had flippers, but it had no bumpers. There were just wooden okay. targets. There's just wooden targets, and you would hit the wooden target, it would bounce off, drop the wooden target, and then you'd get some kind of physical roller of a thing for points, and it would come down, and then you'd just play until you lost the ball. That was uh, a very early machine, plus there were driving machines, which would, would rotate uh, drawn-out pieces of road again, and if you got off the road, it would be lesser points. If you stayed on the road with the contacts, metallic contacts, it would give you more points. Uh, but last yeah, that was uh, that was one of the original ones that I remember playing. I think it was called Grand Prix. Actually, you sat in a in a seat with a steering wheel, and there was a plastic Grand Prix car mm-hmm. that, as you rotated the wheel, it rotated left and right, yes. and it did sort of a a 
uh, projection onto a screen that was the road. And yeah, you tried to tried to steer the car um, very crudely. I don't remember enjoying it, but I do remember playing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, one more that I wanted to say was I think I played multiple times Sega's original arcade coin-op game. I don't remember the title of it, Sea Wolf or something like that. It was oh yeah yeah. It was so yeah. cool. It Periscope, was, I think, it, is what it was called. Okay, yeah. it, it was immense to a ten-year-old. It was immense. And you put your your head through the periscope, yeah. And, and then you would fire, and essentially what you would do it was this lit up torpedo under the water, which is all wax and plastic, and it looked just darn cool. It would go towards the boats in the distance, and if you hit one, it would you know turn red and make a big noise, and you get points. And if you got so many hits, you'd get another torpedo, which was like, ooh, I won! I get another torpedo. And to an impressionable kid at that stage before we got into actual video games. That was cool. Well, I'll tell you, I just played that like three months ago. I it, hate it, you. It's, it's still kind of cool. Oh, I hate you. Good deal. Um, <laughs> well, so here's the thing that I will tell everybody, and I think like this is probably important to note, is that um, because especially these older ones are such big, hunking machines, some of them are still being preserved places. Cool. Um, the places I would tell you to look if you're out there, fair listener, and you want to kind of experience some of this old school uh, vibe for these machines is anything that says Pinball Hall of Fame probably has some of the older pinball machines in some way, shape, or form. Um, and if they call themselves a Pinball Hall of Fame, wherever your Pinball Hall of Fame is, because um, there are like 80 of them, uh, most of them have at least like one old codger that's still working on them. Uh, so they're <laughs> still in okay shape. Places like old amusement parks. So even your Disney properties, I know used to have stuff like this, but places like Hershey Park and King's Dominion, and some of them are still maintaining some of their really old, old machines. Same thing for a lot of boardwalks. A lot of boardwalks still have hidden in the back because the same like 74-year-old dude is still working on it, so he won't give up on that machine because it's easy for him <laughs> to fix. Sure. <laughs> um, is still there. Where I played Torpedo was actually MAGFest. So some of these video game conventions still have hobbyists that are putting these back together. And like at MAGFest, they're doing it just so that, you know, 17-year-olds can experience like what this was really like. And I know for me, being much more than 17, I appreciated the experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's let's fast forward uh, to about 1978. So in between then, the electromechanical started to go away and the the actual video game computer type running uh, thing kicked off. There were a few early ones. You know, you talked about Space War, yep. first Pong. Mm -hmm. um, but the real first main big hit was a little game from Taito called Space Invaders. Oh, yep. yeah. A lot of quarters on that one. Yeah, I remember being in some restaurant somewhere. I want to say it was in Maine, visiting my grandparents, and they had they had Space Invaders, and I just stand, stand, stood there and just watched this guy play it. And I remember he was like, hey, you want to play? And I was like, no, I just want to watch this, because it was the most amazing thing to me at the time. <laughs> oh, it was great. I'm, when someone's good at a game like... Like, I don't know that I'm the biggest Space Invaders fan on Earth. I never was. But, like, when someone's really good at a game like Space Invaders, it can still be pretty entertaining to watch. Yeah, yeah. And what's fun, I remember about that game, and a lot of these early games, was that they weren't in color at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all black and white, either vector or raster graphics. And they would have transparent color sort of taped over the screen. Mm -hmm. So, like, when the UFO goes across the top, it's green because there's, you know, transparent green there. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. What I liked about Space Invaders, too, was the fact that when I was uh, less of age, I was able to crook my neck around this one piece of broken equipment that the Space Invaders had at the bowling alley. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. The actual video screen, it's just, like, black and white. Not vector, but just uh, roster graphics. Yep. And it was just a black and white screen. But because it was angled and it had a reflector piece, it was reflected on the background, which was artsy drawn, and it made it look like it was on a planet. But the screen itself was not artsy at all. It was just black and white, essentially. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. It almost gave it depth as yeah. well, because you had the screen behind it. Yep. And I'm not certain, either of you might correct me, but I'm wanting to say this is the first game where you had lives, because previously most of your games were timed. I, I'm mm. just not sure... That sounds yeah. like it could be right. It's certainly the one that popularized having lives. Oh, that's, that is definitely yeah. true. And another thing to notice, Space Invaders also had some insane number of cabinets. 
Like, there were maybe 20 different cabinets to that game. So some are color, some aren't. Some are reflective with an earth surface. Some are just black and white staring at you. Like, just because if you're out there and you're saying, like, I don't know what you're talking about, you may have just played one of the other 19 different versions (laughs) of Space Invaders that was released. Yeah. Yep. And it, of course, spawned uh, various... Uh, competitors, uh, the first one that always pops in my mind is Galaxian, which is Space Invaders A in color, and uh, there was more movement, I want to say. The bad guys moved more. Yeah, they would, remember. they would have little packets of insects, which would, space insects, which would drop down on you in a convoy and fire That's at it. you. And so uh, that made it harder, but it also made it more interesting if you weren't terrible at it. Too true. Plus it had different tiers of attackers. Yeah. So, like, some of them were just more and better. And I think that was something that spa- everything in Space Invaders was generally equal. Yeah. Whereas although- Galaxian added the here's the big bad guy thing, although not like we would think of a big bad as video games continue to evolve. Right. I think you also so- need to talk about asteroids. Oh, uh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Vector graphics joy. Yep. Vector yeah. Graphics, it sold over 70,000 cabinets, and it was Atari's highest selling game, which is why I think it's important to mention, is yes. that like for as much of a powerhouse as Atari is considered, in all the games you might stick to Atari because of the home entertainment system, really their, their big arcade hit was Asteroids. Yeah. And so just for clarification, so a raster is what we normally think of as video game graphics, pixels. Uh, a vector was line point to point with a line connecting into it. It's essentially a completely different monitoring mm-hmm. system. And it allowed you to have much crisper graphics, assuming your graphics were simply lines. Right. <laughs> Although the- and well, I was going to say, you could do some really amazing stuff when you start seeing some of the la- later uh, vector ones like the Star Wars game and yep. stuff, you yep. could get some really fantastic graphics, but it was a whole different kind of experience. Yeah, and I was going to say the other uh, vector one that I was actually good at when I had Vision was Battlezone, and it was that really was cool. Terrible it, at Battlezone. Oh, yeah. it was it was uh, orangey st- style vectors, and you had these objects, uh, basically 3D triangles and squares in front of you, and it was a tank, and you, it would operate like a tank, and you'd shoot these things. Uh, I was actually really good at that, and I even figured out a kind of a good way. After you're playing a while, it would send down this missile that was coming right at you and firing at you. So even if you fired straight at it, if you stayed in that line, you'd get hit. I figured out a way to kind of deal with that in a good way, and that was like the one game, the one arcade game that I was actually really good at was Battlezone, and it had the radar thing up top too. It would yep. uh, it would put the dots on where your enemies were at. So using that was very helpful. That was a co- it was a very cool game. Definitely. But yeah, so Asteroids, what was a lot of fun about Asteroids was it was just, like Space Invaders, just constant potential doom, right? Oh, yeah. And so you were in the middle of your little spaceship, asteroids are flying around, you're trying to shoot, you could rotate left and right, shoot the asteroids. Each time you hit them, they broke into smaller Mm -hmm. asteroids. Uh, And then there was a UFO that would come out and shoot at you. Uh, What was really interesting was it had two buttons. One was thrust, so you push it and you kind of zipped off. And if you reach the edge of the screen, you wrapped around. And then the other was hyperspace where you disappeared and then reappeared somewhere else. And realize that everything in this game can kill you and is in constant motion. Thrusting or hyperspace was just a roll of the dice. I was never good at that game. I always like I just never had like the mojo for it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Me um, either. I, if you go to Origins, across the street from Origins is Barley's and upstairs is their barcade. And what sits in sort of the vestibule between the upstairs and the Barley's is an asteroids machine. And one of my coworkers is out of control at asteroids. Like <laughs> can play thirty five minutes on one quarter good at asteroids. It's like wow. nothing I've ever seen. Cool. Yeah, I wasn't. I, uh, uh, oh, go ahead, Eric. No, I was gonna say I was decent enough to get on the high scoreboard more than once. Not me. I, I, while I said I was good at Battlezone, Asteroids I sucked at because anytime I thrusted, I'd drive into something. I could not control. Yes. So <laughs> yep. and then you hit the hyperspace, and then you could pop up right in front of the, the bulbous huge one, and that would kill me. So what I wound up doing is never thrusting, and then this flying saucer would always kill me because it knew I'd be just sitting there. Yeah. So, speaking of the high score, which is the ultimate goal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you guys have any particular monikers you'd put in those three letters when you reached the high score table? I was boring. I would just put my initials B A C. 
Yeah, I was oh. I was the same way because mine were alphabetically in order, and they would give you sometimes a very short amount of time to get mm-hmm. in there before you could put like ass in. Jeez, <laughs> oh, uh, mine are BHV and they're in order. So I'd be like B, okay, H, okay, only four, three, V, I'm in. Like so, so <laughs> that I would just do my initials and run off. So I of course did EAD, which were my initials. But then I thought, oh, you know, what would be cool. Uzi, it's a machine gun or a submachine gun, and it's three letters. So I was Uzi for a long time <laughs> oh, in middle school. And, and, and then, then and this kids is the uh, the precursor to now living your entire life being known by your handle. Yeah, there exactly. <laughs> and eventually, I just got to Irk E R K. Nice. <laughs> um, all right, some other big video games of the era. I guess certainly you can't talk early video games without talking about Pac-Man. Uh, a complete cultural phenomenon. Uh, yes, exactly. I couldn't help uh, it, to, sorry. That's okay. I was actually expecting Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia <laughs> to pop up. Which, coincidentally, but, Kitty Cats, Puppy Dogs, there was one album made about old-school video games, and that is Buckner and Garcia's Pac-Man Fever. I have yes, it proudly. I have it proudly on my, I, my computer. I have it on vinyl. Oh my! Well, my sister first album my sister ever bought was Pac-Man Fever. Nice. And in the sleeve that holds the records, what do you find, Bruce? I don't. Do you remember? I don't remember. No. The patterns to beat Pac-Man. Is that oh in my. there? Yes. Because I, I bought mine at a record store of like maybe eight years ago. I think I don't have the right sleeve. Okay, because yeah, oh. the sleeve had on front and back was all the patterns. Because the thing with Pac-Man was that. They always did the same pattern. The the ghosts did, and so they you ultimately people figured out what pattern you could do to always win the game. And so it was just a question of memorizing those things, which I never bothered to do. But <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, I think I have a bootleg uh, inner sleeve. Gosh that darn it! <laughs> you know, they're relatively fragile. So true. And another thing to note about Pac-Man is the single most successful video game of all time. Bar none, hard stop. It sold 350,000 cabinets and racked up over $2 billion in revenue. That is some big dollars. Yeah, if you adjust that for inflation, it's $3.4 billion off of a one video game title. Wow. Wow. And, and it makes me think, because I had always heard that Ms. Pac-Man was probably the most popular video game of all time. I don't know how you would measure that. Um, I mean, you'd have to make- measure it by something like like cabinet sold, and everything I've found says that it's Pac-Man, which is very confusing to me, because I think Ms. Pac-Man is a superior game in every possible way. It is, and also, it's still being manufactured. Uh, usually, it's a Pac- Ms. Pac-Man Galaga cabinet. Yeah. Um, so, but, regardless, Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man were huge successes. I mean... I'm trying to think all of the things that have spun off from Pac-Man besides the video games. There has been there was cartoon series, numerous toys, the little the little Coleco toy uh, arcade cabinet, cereal, cereal, yeah, cereal stuffed animal. Like this was the first time a video game was a an an IP. Like, yep, that people right. wanted to just be near Pac-Man things. Like, I still remember as a kid, like, making my father buy a Pac-Man car air freshener. Like, right. yeah, oh, that's, that's where Pac-Man got to. Like, there were suction cup things you could stick to your car. There was, like, any other sort of phenomena that you think of that's sort of a cultural pop culture phenomenon. You think of all the stupid tchotchkes that are sold with that, whether you think of, you know, New Kids on the Block or the California Raisins or, like, Pac-Man was a legit IP by 1980, like, 1981, uh, which is just unheard of. One of my favorite stories ever is apparently Hugh Hefner, um, well-known pervert, and man <laughs> who ran the Playboy Empire. So he was sort of a controller. He was, you know, the Illuminati of cool in the 80s. Uh, had to wear like a bowling wrist brace for months because he bought a Pac-Man machine and had like almost he had sprained his own wrist so badly <laughs> that he had to like wear a wrist brace. Wow! <laughs> um, and that was one of the things like you could do you could do and interpret this however you want anything you wanted at the Playboy Mansion except for play Pac-Man if you wanted to play Pac-Man. 
that's fine. Like that's the way the story goes. Is like he was real. You re- like anybody could make it maybe to the grotto, but you really had to be people with heft to get to the Pac Man machine. <laughs> that's funny, and it also reminds me of. Um, like developing a blister on your hand from the joystick. Yep. And I want to say it was called like Pac-Man bl- r- uh, blister or yeah. Pac- Pac-Man wrist or something. You know how how uh, before you get the repetitive strain injury title, yeah, you have I, to come up with some sort of quirky thing. I'm yeah. sure I, I, I think I got the button smashing of joust from that, but different injury. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. But my, my favorite side story on Pac-Man is it was originally called Puck-Man by, oh, by yeah. people overseas, but they thought... Uh, adolescent teen boys would scratch off part of the P and make it into an absurd sounding game, so they chose to call it Pac-Man instead of Puck-Man. I mean, some I think part they were of me right. would like to see the amended Puck-Man machine, but I understand the decision. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so speaking of arcade IPs, uh, following Pac-Man, the next big one was a little... Uh, he wasn't a plumber at the time, but uh, a little Italian guy versus a giant monkey. Oh, yeah. Or ape, I should say. Forgive me. <laughs> but of course, we are talking Donkey Kong, where Donkey Kong steals his. I don't know if it was Peach, but he steals his girlfriend, and uh, so it Mario. Is Pauline. Pauline, Pauline, you are correct. And, and I will tell you, if you want to know how influential Pauline still is in Nintendo, she was just released as a character for Mario Tennis Aces, I think, last month. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> people are reminding you she exists. The main differences are she's still like a svelte, well built woman. Uh, but she has dark hair and wears a lot of red in the gotcha. in the modern versions of her. She's also the mayor of Donk City, which is one of the cities that Donkey Kong can be in. <laughs> yeah, speaking of just IP, I mean, the whole Mario Donkey Kong world, I mean, it, it runs Nintendo. Oh, yeah. Everything is focused on it. And the, you know, just I, I don't keep track of any of it because I have no idea who's what, you know, who Wario is or the the cannonball with teeth and you know all yeah. that stuff <laughs> well yeah it all started here with donkey kong and at this point i think he was just known as jump man yes uh, you are correct which now is that symbol of michael jordan slam dunking that's on air jordans yeah that's now jump man but it used to be uh mario as now he's become and he got fleshed out in mario brothers and then eventually of course super mario brothers which is exactly what you're talking about. Super Mario Brothers is the point that has become all of Nintendo uh, that is leading up into all the stuff on the Switch now, like uh, Smash Brothers and Aces and all these like Mario games all come from sort of that genesis of Donkey Kong to Mario Brothers to Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. And one of the things I always... I was never a big fan of Donkey Kong. I felt the controls were difficult. Yes. Um but I tell you, when the sequel came out, Donkey Kong Jr., where you're running Donkey Kong Jr., and now you're trying to rescue your dad from Mario, first of all, I loved the little twist on that, and the gameplay was just a lot of fun to me in that one. Yeah, I yep. do think it was probably a, a better game, although I still have like a lot of feels for Donkey Kong. It was mm-hmm. such a cool-looking machine. It told a story that was obvious, like on the side of the machine. Now, it was like a damsel in distress story, so we're going to have to kind of get past that sort of part of history it wasn't deep yeah. yeah it wasn't it wasn't deep and it wasn't necessarily pretty but like on the side of the thing was donkey kong stealing pauline in the game you needed to save pauline it was still more story than anything else you had seen and there's just something about like that machine look that i just it's so iconic for i just think the colors and how the like the literal graphic layout is used to show you like the people that are in the story in the four corners um, there's also really, and, if you take a look, a father made for his daughter, like a gender-swapped version. Oh, yeah. Where Mario's been captured and Pauline has to save him. Where the machine is pink and everything is reversed. That's awesome. That, okay. Yeah, if you take a look like arcade collectors out there, you can even buy the stickers to make your own. But take a look at that, especially if you know the old blue Donkey Kong machine. Seeing it changed and reversed like just brings a smile to my face. Cool. And I want to point out that the sound in that game was also iconic in my mind. I mean, Pac-Man oh, yeah. was relatively, but it was just that waka waka waka. But this one, I mean, you, you the jump sign, the do 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 do. Yeah, they really they really played up the sound in that game, and that made a huge impact. Yep. I think. Absolutely. So at that point, you know, now we start hitting where there's just a, a glut of fantastic games. Uh, Tempest is is a great one. That I'm thinking of. It's another vector game, and you have that dial that you could spin as you're going around 
and shooting. And uh, one of the fun stories about that is like you're shooting sort of electronic things. They call them sparks and zappers and things like that. But if you look at the side of the arcade cabinets, these these alien, like almost demonic creatures that you're fighting. <laughs> and I remember the, uh, reading an article where that was the original concept, but the graphics and whatnot and the gameplay never really met that concept. So they just went with the game, but they weren't going to redo the cabinets. <laughs> that's oh, that's funny. fantastic. That kind of reminds me if you look at the old like um, Atari twenty six hundred uh, art pieces that were made for the arc for the cartridges. Like when you bought the box. Yeah, it's always like this yeah. crazy, almost like Frank Frazetta fantasy art, and the games never lived up to that. <laughs> yeah, and they're just right. a block right. moving around. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So what were some other games like from this mid eighties? Area that you guys have fond memories of? Oh, a lot. I could bore you with, but I, I will tell a couple of quick ones. There was Tron Deadly Discs. It was about when mm-hmm. Tron came out. It yep. was you, you stepped inside the cabinet, uh, and it had a back to it that you, you know, you couldn't back. If you backed into it, you'd hit your head. That was cool. And then it had fluorescent Jimi Hendrix purpley lights. And essentially, <laughs> what you would do is you were on these discs, and you would be throwing discs at your opponent. As if you were in, embedded in the Tron movie, and they would bounce off the walls. And so that, to me, as someone who, uh, who likes math and all that kind of stuff, I was like, oh, this bounces off at an angle. I can figure this out. And I just loved the whole theme of it and the fact that I was decent at it. But I, I thought it was just a cool look. So that's, that's one of them. Another one, which may not be real popular, it was called Crazy Climber. And this, uh, this to me, hated that game. <laughs> I loved it because to me it was immersive. In that, uh, this was one where you were playing a guy who had suction cups on his hands, hands and feet, right? And so you were trying to get up to the top of the building, but you had annoying people in a metro complex who were throwing plants out, or just opening the windows, or you know some goofy bird could come along, and so you're going left and right, up and down, and you'd hear the suction cups. But you felt part of the game because with every movement that the guy did on screen with the hands, you were physically doing it with a, a kind of a, a, a big joystick, uh, two big joysticks. Yeah, you had like dual joysticks, you did right? Have, one for each hand. Yes. And so to me, as a younger person, that was immersive to me, as stupid as it sounds. And I loved that game and I wasn't too bad at it. So Crazy Climber was another one that I really enjoyed. Uh, last but not least, in eighth grade, we had... Uh, at the famous Le Mans Speedway, they had an eight-person drive drive racing game. What? Yes, and so you could all dump in up to eight quarters, two two aside across four sides, and it was this huge track. I mean, think of uh, the Atari game Indy Five Hundred. It was basically that on an arcade game on, on like four screens put together, right? Huh. And you would just drive, and we had so much fun, and it was a great money maker too. I mean, that, that it was a game though; it was either like dead for hours, or a bunch of kids would all come in and play it at once to get that eight-person or seven-person experience. And I can't remember the title of it, but that was another fun one that that we really enjoyed. Hmm, that's awesome. Yeah. So how about you, Bruce? What are some games from, from that early 80s, early to mid-80s? So that early to mid-80s, I think another thing to kind of note here is that most of the popular video games that did all the money and that everybody knows about were released between like 81 and 83. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which I just learned in doing research for this episode. Because in my head, they were stretched out from probably like the early, like the mid-70s through to about the mid-80s. And it really was like a two-year period from 81 to 83. <laughs> right. Um, uh, my favorite of all time, which I think fits in this period, but I'm not sure, is Cubert. Yep, um, love it. Yeah, Cubert. You have like a giant pyramid of cubes. You are a weird creature with like a a blow nose and big happy eyes, uh, and you hop on these cubes. And when you hop on the cube, you change the color. And what you're trying to do every time is is make all of the cubes the same color. And if you do, you win. Um, you have uh, Coily, which is uh, for some reason just like a, a snake. That can appear, a springy snake. <laughs> he can appear out of nothing and just attacks you for no good reason. Um, he also has, I'm trying to remember, the little green guys were his friends. I don't know. There was a ball that fell on yeah, you. Yeah, there's a ball that falls on you. There's like little green guys that try to attack you. They're like friends of Coily, but they're not as smart. There's little dudes that will help you that if you get a hold of them, they'll like throw you to the edge of the board. And then if you're really getting in trouble, 
Uh, in Pac-Man, you would have sort of the power pellet, and you could turn the tables. In this one, you can jump off the board by landing on like a spinning disc, and it will yeah. carry you off the board away from trouble and back up to the top of the board. Um, and that was just a game. I had a little mini version that was like a little mini arcade cabinet I had as a kid and just played the hell out of it. <laughs> and even now when I go to like barcades and stuff, which um, we have a big one here in the Baltimore, D.C. area called Crab Town, which is like a 75 machine arcade. Um, and they still have a Qbert there, and I can still usually get the high score. So I've kept some of those, some of that uh, that energy I could have used to like learn better math. I have trapped <laughs> in being good at Qbert. Um, but I love that one, and another one I think is really amazing because it just feels so like early to mid '80s is Burger Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in Burger Time, you are uh, a burger cook that, for some reason, uh, has been tasked with making burgers. Roughly the size of large buildings. Uh, you have to run across parts of a burger so that the, like the the bun and the meat and the cheese and the tomato and the lettuce fall down onto the bottom bun. And you do this by literally running your whole body physically like running across a bun. And as you do, it drops down. And if it hits another bun, everything will compress down one level. But think of this as if you were doing it like on the Donkey Kong girder skyscraper. Uh, you are attacked during this by angry anthropomorphic pickles and eggs <laughs> uh, and sausages that for some reason do not want you, Peter Pepper, to get your job done. But you can paralyze them by shooting them with handy-dandy pepper and they're frozen. So you can trap them onto a bun, run across them, and their weight will carry the bun down two levels. Um, it is an absolute fever dream of a video game. <laughs> uh, and I think for just being the gameplay was a lot of fun and the idea is so absurd that it just sort of is held in the consciousness because of that yeah definitely so a couple that I want to just sort of call out I mean I, I was never a huge fan of it but you got you got to talk about Frogger oh definitely oh, yeah. trying to move the little frog across the street yep. and then onto the little moving water stuff and into his home um I tell you, one of the early ones that I really liked was Star Castle. It was a vector game. Yes. And in the center was this big cannon spaceship, and it had all these rotating walls around it. And so you were shooting the walls, trying to shoot the cannon, but if you created an opening, it would shoot you back. You know, okay. shoot back at you. And and so that one that one was kind of interesting and fun. Um, I liked it as well. And but when you mentioned Discs of Tron, I immediately thought of Tron. Uh, also, obviously, based on the movie. But what was great about Tron was it was four video games in one. Because <laughs> you you got to move your stick up, down, left, or right. And depending on which way you went, was what there was like a tank game and the light cycles. Light cycles and then yeah. you were like a breakout game. And I forget what the fourth one was. Uh, some of the, oh, you were, it was like Robotron. You were shooting the little grid grid bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that one, that one was always a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead, Eric. No, go ahead. I was just—I wanted to mention just just so that the listeners can get a few uh, a, a better view of even more games that were very popular when I was in high school. Pole Position was a good racing game. <laughs> nothing. Oh, yeah. There was nothing more to it than driving your your F one car around, and it's you know by today's standards poor graphics, but at the time you sat in the cabinet. The music was pretty cool, and the sounds are pretty cool. Um, and it was also one of the first ones that really had that behind the car view instead of a top down. View. Yes. Yes. And then there was Joust, which I I, I messed, messed up some of my hands on because <laughs> you had a joystick and you were basically a, a rider of a flying ostrich, as absurd as that sounds, with various – it's 2D, with plateaus. And essentially, if you made contact with the uh, Jousters who were trying to kill you, whoever had the highest pixel defeated the other. And that's how you would lose your lives. Your lives. But if you hit one of them, it would sometimes turn into an egg, and then it would bounce. If it bounced into lava, it would die. But if it bounced onto another platform, there would be a small window of time by which it would grow into another rider, and magically, an, a flying ostrich would would uh, go on the screen, and then it would become another rider against you. So it was a very hard game, but a lot of uh, you hit the buttons to make your uh, ostrich flap. I was going to say you're higher. missing the key there, the flap button. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what I ruined uh, a wrist on. Uh, and I got like a serious, not serious, a, an arcade injury. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was hurty, but it was a good time. 
Yeah, Joust. I loved Joust, and I loved just how original of a concept it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And pretty much every game we've mentioned spawns a, a sequel at some point, and almost all of these sequels are forgettable. Yes. Uh, Ms. Pac-Man's probably, and Donkey Kong Jr. probably the notable exceptions, but, I mean, there was a Joust 2, there was a Space Invaders 2, Asteroids 2, and they all tried to do bigger, better, more, um, but... They never, I felt, really touched the originals. Yeah. Although also, before... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to mention there are a couple games from this era that we're missing. Uh, maybe not favorites of ours, but games that have endured 30-plus years, and you're going to know what they are. Um, Centipede, mm-hmm. which used the rollerball, hated yep. the game. Hate uh, it. Played <laughs> it some as a kid, but I will tell you, they, they're still making like tiny centipede machines. I hated um, it as well, but yeah. Uh, another <laughs> that I liked, uh, Dig Dug. Oh, yeah. Oh, is, yeah. A, is another big game of this era. Love that, that one. And I mean, still remember, all of these games, uh, I don't know that every one of them we mentioned, but like Frogger, Galaxia and Galaxian, Centipede, Dig Dug, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., Tron, are all from like 1980 and 81. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Defender. I forgot about Defender. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, Pac-Man, huge hit, very simple controls, a, a four-way joystick. Defender, good-sized hit. Incredibly complicated controls. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You had the up and down, which moved. It was a side view ship. You had thrust. You had fire. You had smart bombs. You had hyperspace. You had reverse, all of which were buttons. And and I actually played this last summer. It was at a, a Casa Bonita in Denver. Nice. They had like an, a bunch of old arcade games, and that was one of them. And uh, oh, my gosh, I was terrible at it. Hated the game. <laughs> but I love playing it back in the day because it was so complicated, you know, and yeah. I didn't do all that great. But yeah, and, and I, before we move on uh, in in terms of time, I did want to highlight a couple quick games. I don't remember the titles of them. One of them was even Vector Graphics. There was a series of games that used actually live, not live, uh, actual plastic modeling pieces and projected it onto the screen. So the video game itself was just kind of dopey, even vector or roster graphics. But there was a night battle, and it had yes. and it had two pits in it, and mm-hmm. it was you were just fighting it. But if you went too close to the pit, you'd fall into it. But the cool thing about that was there was actual cardboard that made it to look made it look like real pits, and the, yes. the vector graphics were projected onto that so that they blended together, and it made it gave it a realistic look. That was really cool, even though that lasted for like a half a year before that game died. And then another one, another one I can't remember the name of. The modeling, physical modeling, was immense. It would have even modern, uh, you know, miniature hobbies just drooling over it. It was like this big pit dug into the ground, uh, and there was stuff all over it. There was platforms you could ride the, your 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 vehicle up and down and shoot it shoot stuff. Um, but the modeling was amazing, and it projected and it made it look real. So I just wanted to highlight a couple of those. Th- those came and died very quickly, but I thought it was at least a cool concept to uh, to explore. Yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, and Galaga. When we were talking about sequels. I yeah. totally forgot oh, about yeah. the greatest sequel of all time, which arguably with Ms. Backman, but Galaga, um, which is uh, everything that was great about... I, I was never a big Galaxian fan, but I loved Galaga. When it came down, stole your ship, you shot it back, now you have a double ship. Oh, yeah. Uh, brilliant. All right, so let's move into the mid-'80s. So the the there's a fallout basically a shakeout of video games uh, certainly in the home console market but it did hit the arcade a little bit but the technology certainly increased more and we started to see some some more complicated games um, and this is where like the original fighting game karate champ comes into play <laughs> i yeah, love that, that. Uh, yeah that's what 1989 i believe is karate champ yeah. um one thing yeah. to note because you say fallout and i i just want to give some kind of statistics to just prove how big a fallout this was um according to at least the article that i have in front of me here the industry had gone from a 12 billion dollar industry in 1982 to a 100 million dollar industry in 1985 <laughs> wow. like it wasn't uh, it wasn't like it kind of fell out a little bit it was <laughs> that the whole bottom came out from under everything all of a sudden And yeah, and a lot of it was overproduction. It was, la- you know, just too many, too many people in the marketplace, and 
Yeah, it's just not enough innovation. Too many games that were exactly the same. Too many games that were just general copies. Um, as is with all forms of entertainment, there became kind of a moral battle against video games that didn't help them. Uh, certainly didn't kill the industry. Um, but they sure did try. Yes. And, yes. You know, like, like th- they argue in the things that I'm seeing that, you know, like these concerned parents are what killed the industry. But I, I think so did vicious overproduction. A lot of people that don't know how to business were involved in business at this point. You know, right. like, it became sort of like, I guess, like board games kind of are now where like every nerd that was a hobbyist and kind of good at something was like, I can make my own company. And they were like, yeah, cool, here. Here's uh, $200 million worth of revenue. And then they went, oh, God, I don't know. And everything just kind of collapsed onto itself. Yeah. It's like vape shops now, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like, you know these vape hobbyists are not going to be in good shape in two more years. Right. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Oh, one of the games that I thought was just a lot of fun in this era was uh, Track and Field. Yes, and so the idea with track and field is that you're competing in Olympic events and you had two buttons or three buttons. Two of them were kind of the faster you alternated them, the faster your dude ran. And then the third button was, you know, to make you jump or pole vault or stuff. And so you do all these different things and, you, and kids would just be banging that thing as hard as they could. In fact, eventually they made these little covers that went over the buttons um, so that you could only hit them by moving your fingers in like forward you couldn't hit them from the side or the back because people would take a pencil and kind of oh, wow. use it to seesaw back and forth i mean it was there was a lot of it was a this constant technological or skill versus technology kind of thing oh that's crazy but it did trigger a little renaissance or not a renaissance but a little uh, burst of sports games like these there was a lot of olympic games especially on computers and things and uh video games Oh, consoles. Oh, definitely. Plus, one thing that kind of came out of all of this that is maybe it's got to be one of my favorite video games of all time is Punch Out. Yes. Um, and yes. Punch Out was part of. I believe it came out in maybe eighty five or eighty six. So it was just like the fallout had happened. And the part, the one of the major features of this game, you're going to know this game if you've ever seen it because it has two screens. It has a main screen where you're boxing, and the technology behind that is they figured out how to make bigger pixels. So it could look like the thing was closer to you. So they could do that and make like a better, more detailed character. But once they did, it ate up like everything they could do with one screen. So then there's a <laughs> second screen above you that like tells you statistics and sort of your hit points and, you know, has like um fight posters that are sort of like you as little Mac and then whoever you're fighting like bald bull. Oh, yeah. um, but the reason it all happened was, was Nintendo in the earlier years had made 60 thousand units of donkey kong in one year so they ordered sixty thousand more monitors oh. <laughs> and they got orders for five thousand more donkey kongs so they went to like what they considered their in like in-house group of nerds they literally said the whole group of people were just like otaku and weirdos and they went to them and said we have to get rid of thirty thousand extra monitors figure out how we're going to do that and they worked on creating a two-monitor game, and they had played with a whole bunch of stuff and ended up at Punch-Out!, um, which, like I said, always drew my attention as a kid. One, for the two monitors, and two, you had, like a, you, had, you had essentially like a jab button, you had a body blow button, and then you could kind of guard up and guard down, and if, depending on how you hit your... Uh, you had a, I'm sorry, you had a left and a right. If you left them normal, it was a jab. If you dropped your, your down on your uh, shift, it would body blow. And you could dodge left and right. But then there was like a giant candy-like button that was your haymaker uppercut. Mm-hmm. And if you could get enough stuff in, you could hit this big giant button like a game show. And your guy would <laughs> throw an uppercut and most cases have pretty effective damage with it. Yeah, no, it was yeah. a great game. I couldn't get past Bald Bull, frankly, but it was a fun game. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is where you're going to hit that second stream of arcade classics yep. like Contra, um, I'm trying to think some of the other ones. We, we used to play Heavy Barrel all the time. Oh, but yeah. right next to it was Altered Beast. Yep. And no one ever played Altered Beast, so that's where we hung our our jackets was on the Altered <laughs> Beast choice. I had played some Altered Beast in my day. Also, this is, I believe, where you get Gauntlet. Oh, yeah, yeah, in the yeah, same yeah. period, which was like a four-player D&D adventure that its entire job was just to eat quarters from you unfairly. Exactly yeah. right, because you were going to be... It was just a mass 
overwhelming of you, and you, you're even if you weren't being hit, your health still deteriorated. Yeah, it just seemed to be like life's getting you down, man. And you would just constantly <laughs> just keep slowly dying. Uh, but you get that. You get. Uh, I think Atari came out with a game called Pit Fighter, which actually used like oh. photographic people. Which yep, uh, yep. you'll think of a lot more with Mortal Kombat, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but it used sort of that technology. Um, you're going to get in here sort of your early sports games. So you're going to get kind of your your stuff that came out like just before NBA Jam and NFL Blitz. Because they're going to come right. in sort of the third wave of arcade games. Um, yeah. You also get really weird also- ones like Tubin. I don't know. Did either of you yeah. ever play that? Yeah, no. where you have like the left paddle and the right paddle with your hands. Yeah, and the thing was like, more importantly than anything else, it was sponsored by Pepsi. Because it reminded <laughs> you, like since Tapper, which Tapper was a Budweiser game, and if you found it in the right place where it was kid-friendly, it was an A&W or Hires Root Beer game. Um, this was like, you threw Pepsi cans at each other, and Pepsi was like prominently featured all over the machine, and all of the cans were like better graphics than the dude's. <laughs> because you had to make sure they were a Pepsi can. So you got some kind of weird games in this era that were just trying to figure out kind of how to make games profitable. Yeah, and you also started to see the the buddy beat-em-ups. So like Double Dragon and um, I can't think of any of the others. Fatal Fury, was that one of them? Anyway, where it's like you could do co-op and you're both a fighter and you're going you know left to right beating up everybody. Um, so yeah, but uh, then... We hit the big time, and that's when Capcom releases Street Fighter 2. Yes, and then, yeah, that blows the doors off of fighting games. Yep, and everybody makes a fighting game. And so, yeah, so Street Fighter 2 comes out, and very complicated game. I mean, you've got six buttons, you've got a joystick, you've got all these characters with special hidden moves that you have to discover or look up in a book in the bookstore of the mall or next to the arcade. <laughs> This is the point where playing video games for money becomes real. Yes. Like, people consider it a skillful enough game that like, you can gamble and play video games and feel like that is perfectly fair. Exactly. And then, um, of course, with Street Fighter II success came Mortal Kombat, and the big thing there was it was digitized actors. Yes. yes. And it was and needlessly violent. It, yeah, excessively violent. Yeah. Almost comically violent yes. and that my friends is why you now have ratings on your video games that you purchase yeah, pretty much like <laughs> because of mortal Kombat. i'll never forget walking into an arcade uh here locally and i saw you know there was tetris and stun runner which was a game i really liked a, a racing game that you set on the bike uh-huh. but I, I looked over after my game the stun runner and i saw mortal Kombat. my mouth hit the floor because I was like, oh my gosh, what kind of graphics are they using? Because those were not photorealistic people, but it, it was the best that I had ever seen. Yeah, it was It was amazing. And then, honestly, there was a, a big um, rivalry between Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter for the rest of the, the well, for a little while in the arcades. Um, you know, the Street Fighter came out... It was like Street Fighter 2 and then Championship Edition and Ultimate Edition and, you know, and then, of course, Mortal Kombat had 2 and 3 and then sort of petered out. Um, well, I mean, Mortal Kombat is about to release number 11. Yeah, once it switched yeah. over into the, the home market, which um, which we'll talk about just a little bit here when we talk about the decline of arcades. Uh, yeah, Mortal Kombat really got revitalized and yeah the 11's coming out very soon yeah and then some other things to note here one is that sega had jumped into the whole fray with a game called virtual fighter which was like polygon weird got dudes and but it was 3d it was 3d which the other ones were 2d and it was like we're gonna beat you with the third dimension and then we were like but yeah but the graphics are worse than the money for nothing video from dire straits (laughs) so we don't really know what to do with this so it died off pretty quickly. Um, coming into the fight at some point was Tekken. So you started yeah. to get Tekken, Tekken 2, Tekken 3. Um, also during this era, you are going to see the big sports games. So you're going to see NBA Jam, uh, which is a huge cultural institution for a lot of people. Um, yes. You know, he's on fire. Like, that's, you know. <laughs> that's the equivalent to Toasty. Exactly. Or or yes. <laughs> toasty. Um, you're also going to see Blitz, which was their attempt at the football version, which also was picked up and, and loved uh, by a lot of people. There was also a, a three-on-three hockey one that just did not do nearly as well, uh, but the basketball and the football 
being the kind of games that have continued to carry on. Um, this is also when you're going to start seeing the early Golden Tee games, uh, oh, yeah, which yeah. are rollerball I, games where you golf. Yes, bar staples there. Exactly, and that's the thing is that these games are starting out kind of in arcades, but people are starting to look at it and say, "Well, uh, the money might not be selling this to kids anymore. It may be selling it to adults." And you start to see these more kind of sophisticated uh, concepts, you know, like making a golf video game that would be played in bars. Um, that isn't right. necessarily the kind of thing you would have seen in the '80s. People were trying to figure it out. You were getting Tapper and stuff, um, but you weren't getting kind of those sort of games just yet. Yeah. And things like NFL Blitz and NBA Jam and, and Golden Tee, they also have that opportunity of being fun to watch. And the fighting games a little bit as well. But, I mean, there's a lot of, especially the, the sports games, there's a lot of trash talking. And, I mean, it just seems to be in in designed to bring people around and kind of cheering on and watching what's going on. Yeah. And the beauty of, like, Jam and Blitz was they were four-player machines. So right. you could play with a friend, and you two could play two more friends. This is also when you see uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, uh, and the X-Men and game. And the X-Men game, which could play... The X-Men and the Avengers could play up to six if you found the right machine. Um, yeah. Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, uh, which could play three <laughs> people and was a personal favorite, although uh, I think i got to let that go now. But at the time, I, so. I at least want to acknowledge I did really like that game. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also get The Simpsons. Which was the one oh, where like yes. Homer hit people with a full bowling bag with a bowling ball in it, and Marge beat him with like a vacuum. Yep. yep. Um, you were getting all these like four player beat 'em ups, which are now also a huge staple of sort of what we're looking back nostalgically uh, at video games with. I'm going to jump in for one quick correction. Um, it is actually not Mortal Kombat that caused uh, the video game ratings. It is a game called oh, Night sorry. Trap. Oh, right. Night Trap the was a uh, Sega CD one. Yep, it was a Sega CD game that really, I actually have it for the Switch. They made like a limited print run of a, of a cartridge for it. Um, oh, Dana Plato was in that. Yes. Yeah. Stroke. I, Dana I, Plato was in that. Oh, I, am bar- I have to admit I owned it, not because it was sorted or anything, but I thought it was a neat concept of interacting with the story. It wasn't that good of a video game, but, no. uh, you know... Uh, I was. I thought the people who were reacting to this were frankly overreacting, but I, I saw their concerns. But I thought they jumped uh, jumped off the deep end on, on thinking this was going to cause violence and stuff. Yeah, and part of what was hilarious was exactly the point you just made, Eric. Even in their trials, they were like, "You're attacking us, and Mortal Combat is a thing." Yeah, <laughs> like we did a campy B movie where, like, at one point, one of the actresses. Is, is in like a, a negligee. And that's as bad as our stuff ever got. They're literally ripping the heads off of people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they were like, they were, even the people that made it were like, they're like, we're not shocked that these ratings would come. We're shocked we're the reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, speaking of consoles, that has to be brought up because that is one of the reasons why the arcade started to, to diminish mm-hmm. a, a third time. And that is that you could get the, the consoles were powerful enough that you got the same experience that you got at the arcade. And you didn't have to plug a quarter in every time to do it. Right. Or two quarters. <laughs> uh, and so that kind of, you know, in the late 90s, it had really dropped quite a bit. Uh, and so that forced arcade designers or arcade game designers to have to figure out how you can bring people in. And so this is what I tend to call like sort of experience machines. Yep. Things that you can't do at home easily, right. and probably the first, the uh, first one that really hit big, I think, was going to be uh, Dance Dance Revolution. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And so you had this; it was a pretty simple game in concept. You had this music playing, and these arrows tell you to hit the left, or right, the front, or the back. But the catch is, there's a big platform on it that you have to hit, and so it, there's a lot of physical skill that you have to build to be successful at this game. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, all kinds of news reports about how people have lost weight playing DDR, and and you could get it at home, but you get, like, a little paper, not a paper mat, but, you know, sort of a, a fabric mat, and, uh, but if you really wanted to go all out, you could build your own kind of mat, and... And so you started seeing all of these games, uh, big shoot 'em ups with massive, you know, assault rifle type things. Oh, yeah. are, are I remember those are popular, like a Dave and Buster's kind of thing. That's what I was going to essentially. Yeah. If you want to know what this looks like, go into any Dave and Buster's. It's only gone from that point, and just the arrow has just gone as far high and out as it possibly can. 
Uh, right. You're, yeah. you're either doing these or you're doing redemption games. Yes. Where you're getting tickets and then going to go get some useless piece of flotsam. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, although I, I will say I enjoyed, I don't remember the name of the game, but it was huge uh, in stage presence. You had four motorcycles you got on and, oh, yeah, and yeah. you would lean left and right to help you steer. Uh, and that you would just race around the track, but it was a lot of fun. And then the winner would get some kind of doo 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 or whatever it was, and that was a that was a good time. Yeah, you're also seeing that one of my one of the experiences I remember from maybe like 2000, maybe a little bit earlier, was being in an ESPN zone, and uh, NASCAR made one that was oh, yeah, eight yeah. cars. Yes, so I'd eight people that. could race. In these like full, they weren't full cars, but you felt like you were in enough of a car cockpit to mm-hmm. matter. And then you each had a screen, and then there was a giant screen over them, so you could just watch the race from you know wherever you were standing. So these were yeah, these were meant to be an experience and like a show at the same time. Yep. Yeah, those were fun. Yep. And so yeah, like you said, they just they go to eleven now. I remember going to a Dave and Buster solely to play the Star Wars game where you're encapsulated in a little pod, and I want to say it was 3D, and you're you're moving. You know, basically, you're flying your ship around, shooting stuff. It's basic game, but the effects were really cool. Yep. And so that's kind of where we are today. That's a brief history of arcade games. So, real quick, guys, I just want to know what are your favorite? You know, if you had to pick one favorite video game, what's it going to be? So, Bruce, I think for me, I'm going to pick two, even though you specifically said to pick one. <laughs> Um, for enough. me, it's either Qbert or Punch Out. Those are kind of, and I think some of Punch Out is sort of tainted for me by Mike Tyson's Punch Out on the home system because that's the yep. one that I really spent my time playing. But Qbert, it's the same deal. I had a little mini arcade game and played that. But Qbert and Punch Out are the two that kind of just I, I feel the most connected to. Cool. How about you, Brian? <laughs> well, since Bruce did too, I'm gonna I'm gonna do two real quick. Uh, the the second place, uh, Lunar Lander, I think it was called. Oh, yep. yeah. And yeah. because it was a visceral experience, you had an arm that went forward and back and vibrated, and you had to land your lunar lander vector graphics on whatever surface, and you had to, you know, reduce the uh, the acceleration and all that kind of stuff and decelerate to where it was a safe landing. So that was a lot of fun, but the vibration and, and, and the visceral experience was good. But I think I'm going to have to go with uh, late 80s, maybe, uh, Cyberball. Cyberball 2020, oh, where uh, the yes. the initial version was you could play against the AI or you could play against maybe one person, and then the later versions had four wide cabinet, which was huge. And in Cyberball, I love football, uh, and another another kind of secondary backup. I think it was called Football Fight or something like that, where you had uh, you could it was just a foot foot NFL type game. Uh, that was fun, but Cyberball trumps it for me, where you had to get your ball into the end zone because otherwise it would blow up. It was a timing mechanism by which yeah. the ball started off cool, and then after a play or two, it got warm, and then it would get hot, and then it would get critical. And you knew that if you had a critical ball, you could be running for the end zone, and it could blow up, <laughs> and your player who was a star player could be blown to smithereens and they would cart it off and sweep it off and put a new crappy player in. That was hysterical. Yes. And I, ju- and I just love the, the sports part of that. The football part is what drew me in, but the humor of the critical ball blowing up uh, just made me laugh. And if you, if you got like past the 50 yard line, it would cool down or into the end zone, yeah. but it added tension that was, that was crazy, but fun. So Cyberball would yeah. would be my choice. Uh, I loved that game. My my buddy Tim and I, we played it all the time. Um, yeah, so you had like six downs to get it either to the 50-yard line or in the end zone, and it would blow up. And you had four plays that you could pick from each time, and the defense the same. And I just remember razzing one another. Tim would always like, critical ball, Eric. You know, you're going to lose your, your QB. That's right. <laughs> yep. And then uh, – yeah, I loved Cyberball. Definitely one of my all-time favorites. And then the the second one, I guess, would be uh, Heavy Barrel. Yep. Which, oh man, and so it's a top-down shooter, but the joystick rotated 360, and so that kind of got your your direction that you were shooting, and you had a gun and a and a grenade. But the the kicker is is that there's crates all through the game, and if you there are seven pieces to the heavy barrel gun. So if you got all seven pieces, then for the next 15 seconds, you just obliterated everything. And then it went away, and then you could collect it again, and, and you could collect it potentially three or four times through the whole game. 
and uh, it was a buddy co-op game. We just we just played the tar out of that. That was just so much fun. The, this makes me want to make one quick note to everyone. If you really want to see a, like a really crazy uh, like amalgam of games on the Switch, and I think a few other systems, is a game called Heavy Burger, where it is okay. an amalgamation of Heavy Barrel, Burger Time, Karate Champ, uh, Streets of Rage, and something else. And essentially, <laughs> okay. it's a tug-of-war game where you are trapped in the Heavy Burger arcade game, and you're trying to get to the other side of the arcade, one arcade cabinet at a time. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're all like little different colored Peter Peppers firing guns, and you have to get the money, and then you move it. But when you run off the edge of the board, it moves you to a new arcade game. So you might move to, like, Pool Champ. And if you move to Pool Champ, pool balls are shooting everywhere and will knock the money out of your hand. And if you get past that, you're then into Heavy Barrel, where all the stuff from Heavy Barrel is shooting you. And, like, it's a tug of war to get to the other side to get the money to the bank from Streets of Rage. Huh. <laughs> I hadn't awesome. played that one. It sounds like a, an amalgamation uh, game like Gorf was. Do you guys remember Gorf? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah, was like yeah, Space yeah. Invaders, then Galaxy, and then something else, then something else, and it was fun. Oh, and Moon Patrol, thinking of other games I played a lot of. It's like a side scroller, mm -hmm. and you could jump your little moon buggy over the craters, and you shoot it. You shoot it. <laughs> you shot forward <laughs> and up at the same time. Yep. I uh, loved Moon Patrol. So, and much like, you know, Brian and I, we early on, we did an 80s music one, and, and it was kind of like, it's not so much the songs, but the songs and the moments of our lives, yep. and I think it's the same thing with the video, with, with video games. Yeah. So, cool. Well, guys, I really appreciate you joining me with this. It's been a lot of fun. Now I want to go play some more arcade games. There you go. If you want to, you can throw out where you want to be found, and we can close. Oh, sure. I, I don't have a big presence. You can just email me directly at heymondo at gmail.com. I am at Cult of the Old, uh, dating back to the Dice Tower days on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter much, but uh, feel free to, free to contact me anyway. Very, very good. You can find me at Party Gamecast, dating back to the old Dice Tower days. <laughs> <laughs> I am still on Twitter, so you can find me there. Uh, if you want to hear my opinions about sometimes video games, but usually professional wrestling and RuPaul's Drag Race, you can find me at Brusco Thinks. And, uh, yeah, anytime you get North Star Games, I probably had something to do with them. Fantastic. Well, I'm Eric Dewey. You can just visit me at ericdewey.com. And I appreciate everyone for listening to this episode of Inverse Genius. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.